New Thinking Aloud, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring spirituality and politics. My guest is Dr. Serena Roney Dougal a person who shares something in common with me. She did her doctoral dissertation in England on a parapsychological topic. Serena is the author of Where Science and Magic Meet, as well as The Fairy Faith, an Integration of Science and Spirit. She has been a guest twice before on New Thinking Aloud. I'm going to link to those interviews. I think you'll find them fascinating if you haven't watched them because they certainly exemplify her strong commitment to a spiritual path. And those are titled Tibetan Buddhist Psychic Traditions and Magic and Nature. But what we haven't yet discussed is the fact that she is a member of the Glastonbury Town Council in England. And now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Serena. I'm very happy to be with you once again. Very nice indeed to see you once again, Jeff. We've talked quite a bit now in the past about your interest in the ancient uh, spiritual traditions of the uh, Ireland and England, and we've talked about your work in India with the Tibetan Buddhists and, and with the yogis. What we haven't talked about at all is the fact that you're a member of the town council there in Glastonbury, England. What prompted you to get into politics? Uh, I, as far as I'm concerned, I'm not into politics. I got my arm severely twisted over about a five or six year period by somebody who really wanted me to join the town council because I'm a Green Party member um, and they wanted more Greens on the town council. And so I finally gave in to the repeated blandishments of this person um, and blow me down, but I got voted in. And in fact, we have a majority of Greens on our town council. So we are actually being able, slowly but surely, it's a Sisyphean task. We keep rolling the rock up the hill and they keep kicking it back down again. But we are managing to get some green policies into Glastonbury Town Council, and we're en route aiming to get Glastonbury zero carbon by 2025. I know in one of your articles, you did point out that the idea that spirituality should be separated from politics was incorrect because in your view, spirituality needs to encompass all of life. So if we just take the Tibetan Buddhist bodhisattva ideal that every thought, word and action is to be for the benefit of all beings, that is a spiritual ideal. And that is also something that means that every, every moment of your life is actually devoted and that is part of politics because, as I've just said, for me, Green Party, our politics is 
involving every part of our life. Every step I take, every breath I take, I'm concerned about the whole planet. I live my life in accordance to be zero carbon, to live lightly on the earth so that others can also have a good life. I'm totally aware of the extinction that is happening at the moment, the sixth mass extinction that this planet has experienced. Uh, I, every moment of my life, I am aware of what's going on in the planet. Now, we can call that politics if we want. We can also call it spirituality. As far as I'm concerned, the two mesh in a holistic way. Well, politics is often thought of as, as the art of exercising power. I have a feeling, though, that your view of politics is, is not so much about power, but maybe about, about something else. For example, about harmony with the environment. A friend of mine used to talk about the power of the shopping bag. So, you know, in terms of a sustainable economy, if the money in my pocket manages to go around seven people in the town, then the whole town benefits. If the money in my pocket goes to a supermarket and goes out to an international corporation, then the whole town becomes poorer. So that is a political act in my shopping bag. So I never go to a supermarket, never. I always use the local market traders in their local market stalls where they have grown the produce themselves in the fields and orchards that surround where I live. And I am benefiting the people who live in the same area as I am. That's a political act. It's also a spiritual act in terms of caring for it's talking about caring it's talking about love it's talking about generosity it's talking about patience it's talking about all these things that are considered to be part of our spirituality in one of our previous interviews uh, i think we titled it magic and nature and we talked about the the old spiritual traditions i think some of the very oldest traditions on on the british isles were ones in which people really did feel uh, themselves to be at, at one with nature that seemed to be the the basis of their whole spirituality as opposed to say transcending it all well, we're talking indigenous spirituality there, aren't we? I mean, whether it's the indigenous people of Britain or those of Australia or those of America or those of China, wherever you are, where people feel their heritage and their ancestry going back through the generations to the land where they live, they have very, very deep roots. They are part of the land, not separated from it by a layer of concrete or anything like that, but absolutely deeply rooted in the land. And so one's spirituality is, is once again this holistic spirituality where you, in your life, in the way in which you live, is in no way separated from the environment in, in, in which you find yourself. And yet, I think there are other traditions that sort of view 
the earth, the nature, the, the materiality of it all, somehow not spiritual, uh, and, and that the idea of spirituality is, I don't know, to have dominion over nature, for example? Well, I think it depends on on what politics you've got. <laughs> um, oh, gosh. There are people who are right-wing. They're both in their politics and their spirituality. There are people who are left-wing, both in their politics and in their spirituality. A right-wing view tends to be a hierarchical view of power. And within that, you will have a spirituality that says that humans have power over the creatures of the planet. A left-wing view is a more cooperative view where you have power with, where you all work together each person being, or whatever it is, each being being a different aspect of the whole. And that is a spirituality that is more of the, what we might call the indigenous type, the Pachamama type, the magical type. Um, and I found that spirituality to be present within the yogic traditions, within esoteric spirituality. Um, and I think that's probably where the difference is uh, between what I would call the esoteric spirituality and the exoteric spirituality, which is more closely defined with organized religions, whereas spirituality I see as something separate from any particular religion. Well, I assume that things are probably in, in the real world a little more complex. Many times you, you come across leaders who, who have a combination of left wing and right wing characteristics. It's, it's not usually so cut and dry. Nothing ever is so cut and dried. Um, but in trying to explain things, it often helps, um, to go to the outer limits and see where things are at the outer limits, knowing that there is a whole path from the extreme left going through the middle grounds right through to the extreme right. Nothing is ever cut and dried, no. Well, apart from um, when you want to dry bits of banana to eat them as dried fruits or whatever it might be, yes. Then you cut and dry it. <laughs> well, you're in Glastonbury, England, which I think almost everybody would agree is kind of a, a spiritual node for the whole planet. It has a very ancient tradition. We've talked about it in our previous interview. It's associated with uh, the Grail legend, for example. Does that make politics in Glastonbury, let's say, different than if you were in Manchester or Yorkshire or London? I'm smiling because just recently a report came out or somebody said that 60 different spiritual groups had been identified in Glastonbury. Now, Glastonbury is a small town of between eight to 10,000 people. So with those eight to 10,000 people, we actually have 60 different religious and spiritual traditions being practiced. That is very unusual. 
Um, and in fact, when I used to come over to the States to do talks and stuff and people asked me about Glastonbury, I used to say, well, roll up the whole of California and put it in one small market town. Um, and then there, that's Glastonbury. So it's, it is very different and it's acknowledged as being very different from most other towns and cities across Britain. Uh, but we do have the evangelical fundamentalist Christians. We do have Sufi groups. We do have um, Orthodox Christians. We do have Zen Buddhists. We do have yoga ashrams. We, you know, you name it, you will find a, that's the spiritual tradition that suits you. Um, available here in town, along with people like me who don't subscribe to anyone in particular. In fact, as I recall thinking about it now, there was a viewer who commented, I think, on one of our earlier interviews suggesting that Glastonbury has kind of become a, a new age commercial center. And because it attracts so-called new age spiritual tourists, there they felt there was a kind of uh, phoniness about it, that it, it's, you know, spirituality is almost a profit center there. So there's commercial spirituality, absolutely, or spiritual commercialism or whatever. And the high street is full of shops where people are trying to sell crystals and all of that. However, that's the surface. And it's probably best not to judge a book by its cover, as the old saying goes, because that is the outer layer that catches the the day trippers, the tourists, the the short-term visitors, and it gets as much money out of them as it possibly can, which is then the lifeblood for the people who live in town. But if you scratch below that surface of glitz and glamour and get as much money out of you as we can, then you find that there's a reason why people come to this beautiful land. And it's the land that is so special, not the shops and the money. The shops and the money is just something by which local people make a living. Um, but it's the land that draws the people to the place. Now, we began this interview, you used the metaphor of Sisyphus the mythological character who's always pushing the rock up the hill. And as he gets near the top, the rock falls down. He's got to push it up over and over and over again, never quite getting it up to the summit. Let's talk about that. It sounds like what you're, you're, you're getting at is a kind of struggle that you've been involved with politically. It's, it's, a, it's a challenge. I mean, one of the, one of the bodhisattva perfections is, is, is that of patience. And it's patience to the level of imperturbility, where one is not perturbed by anything. And when I go to these council meetings, I have a big notice in front of me in capital letters saying patience, so that I don't lose my temper, so that I don't get upset. But what I do find is that I get very stressed. I lie awake at night with my head trying to get around the problem and how to deal with the problem of people who want to kick 
the green ideas into the long grass and ignore them and not do them. I mean, there are things that we have proposed 18 months ago and we are still trying to get them happening. We have to push and push and push and push. It's incredibly hard work. My problem is I'm I'm too passionate. I feel too deeply. I'm too sensitive. I get too upset. I'm not a phlegmatic and sanguine person who can just deal with the opposition, the people who oppose everything. It doesn't suit me at all. But I've made the commitment. I had my arm twisted. I resisted for five years. But finally, I gave in. I got voted in. I know I'm doing really good work. I know I'm really helping to make Glastonbury carbon neutral and self-sustainable in the face of the climate emergency that is ah, rushing over us and the extinction of all the species that is occurring. I know I'm doing good work, but it's really doing my head in. Many people would say that part of being in politics is is the art of compromise, the art of communication, the art of understanding what it's like to be in the shoes of the other person. What what do you know about the people who are opposing you? Uh, what's it like for you to try and see things from their perspective? It's a real challenge. I'm working on it. Can you describe what uh, what their arguments are? The um, Industrial Revolution, wonderful thing. It's changed our lifestyles. It's given us central heated homes and, and cars to run around the planets and all the rest of it. But unfortunately, the bad effect of it is climate emergency, the greenhouse gases. And this person was absolutely furious that we suggested such a thing. What about all the benefits we've had from the Industrial Revolution was all that they could talk about. And they didn't want to even acknowledge that the burning of fossil fuels that was started in a big way by the Industrial Revolution had anything to do with the climate emergency we're in. So I have to put myself into the headspace of that person who is not quite a climate denier, but very, very close to it, and try to understand where they're coming from. I'm not very good at it, Jeff. I've really tried to understand people coming from a right-wing perspective, and I find it incredibly difficult to do. There's another person all he thinks about is power and money. That's what drives him. Now, I can sort of begin to understand somebody who is driven by the lust for power and money. And he's done very well for himself as a town councillor. He's one of the wealthiest people in town now as a result of that business acumen aligned with local politics. Um and I can I can sort of begin to get my head round to understanding that, but is I tell you it's incredibly hard. It, you know, for somebody who is 
basically right off at the far end of the left wing to actually understand people who are coming from that more right wing perspective. It's an incredibly difficult thing to do. But what I do know is that in order to fly, you need two wings. I do know that we need both wings for there to be flight. But what a task, what a task. A, I'm having to learn patience. B, I'm having to learn understanding and acceptance. And these are spiritual attributes. So in terms of my personal spiritual growth, it's it's a real challenge. And, and I feel that if I don't get too sick, that I will benefit from it greatly. I'm under the impression that one of the main differences between left-wing and, and right-wing politics, and uh, uh, it, this is certainly an overgeneralization, but it strikes me that people on the left are very interested in facts, interested in science, interested in evidence, and people on the right uh, have a different view of politics altogether. Their view is that uh, if you have the money and if you have the power, you can basically uh, tell people the facts and, and they'll have to accept that. It's, it's more like might makes right rather than right makes might. I suspect that's probably very true in America. I think it's possibly less true in in Europe. And I think it's even less true in Asia. Um, I know that there's lots of what I would call left-wing people here in Britain who don't actually like science and facts. Um, they tend to be much more away with the fairies than that. Uh, so, so I would not, I, I would still probably equate in general, as you said, right wing to do with power and money. Um, but here the left wing is much more, uh, the, I mean, gr the, the Green Party is probably the most socialist left wing, um, party politic that we have in Europe at the moment. That's uh, all qu quite interesting. Now, you as a person with a background in parapsychology, it's as if you've got one foot in each camp in a way. I know you're very interested in the fairy faith, but you're also uh, a scientist and empiricist. So uh, I imagine for yourself, it's a balancing act. That's been my whole life, Jeff. I mean, that's why my book was called Where Science and Magic Meet because I've always had one foot in both sides. The science I consider to be knowledge, that's what science literally means, knowledge. Um, and magic, of course, comes from the Arabic word. No, somebody told me it was a Persian word to mean wisdom, the wise ones, the magi, the three wise ones. And wisdom is an attribute of spirituality. I mean, my understanding from working with the Tibetans that if you're aiming for enlightenment, essentially you're aiming to become a compassionate and wise being. And and so science and magic is 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 knowledge and wisdom. Um, and I see that they unite in parapsychology because in parapsychology we're talking about the science of, of psychic ability, awareness. 
Um, and that aspect is beyond space and time, where we're shifting into the the um, outer reaches of where consciousness can reside. I recall in our previous uh, discussion about the psychic uh, t- traditions of Tibet, we got into a little bit of a political discussion right at the end there because uh, the Tibetans are very interesting. They have this beautiful Buddhist tradition of, of compassion. They have the ancient Bon tradition with many uh, uh, magical uh, flavors and threads uh, to it. Uh, but politically, I suppose one would have to say it was a very hierarchical, feudalistic political system that got overthrown, basically, by Chinese communism. Yes, absolutely. Um, what more to say? The Dalai Lama is trying to, or has been trying, to bring those Tibetans in exile into more of the 20, 20th century. No, I guess he's, he's heading into the 21st century himself, um, and, and pulling the Tibetans kicking and screaming. But you know, they might have their high philosophy and they might be supreme practitioners of the magical and psychic arts, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the culture is going to be um, a great culture despite all the great teachings that there are. And that is one of the great paradoxes of humanity, isn't it? that within every culture there will be those enlightened spiritual beings. Whichever culture you go to, you will find people who are living the best possible life that a human being can aim to live, and yet they might be immersed in a society that is is brutal, that is cruel, that you know, all all the negatives that we can think of of humanity because we are complex beings, aren't we, us humans? There's nothing simple about us at all. Not, a, not at all. And, uh, you know, I share with you, I suppose, a, a kind of a left-wing political leaning. I'm a lifelong liberal myself, a lifelong liberal Democrat in the United States. But here in this country, I find that Generally speaking, the, the skeptics, or, or the, I'll call them pseudo-skeptics, the ones who want to just out and out deny parapsychology because of their materialistic bias, they tend to be left-wingers. In fact, there, there's even a, a historical connection between PSYCOP, the organization that is so hostile to parapsychology, and, and the American communist movement. Um, and also, on the other hand, I find that many of my viewers have a right-wing leaning, and because of their right-wing interests, uh, they're sort of very open to occultism and in, in esoteric traditions, uh, much more so possibly. I, I can't say for sure, but it almost seems as if there might be more of an interest uh, from right-wingers in esoteric culture than there is from people in the left. I wonder if that's um, what you're talking about is what I would call from a more intellectual perspective as opposed from a living perspective. You know, if I, if I look at people in Britain, which is obviously the culture I know best, 
then the people who are doing the tarots and the clairvoyant readings, the people who are doing the the seances to connect with spirits of the dead, the people who are living those aspects of the psychic, the, the healers and so on, they tend to be, in general, more of a left-wing bias. They're not so intellectual in general. They're not coming from intellect. They're coming from a, a culture of acceptance of those sorts of experiences. And what we've got in the West is the problem that the Christian church for 400 years demonized anybody with psychic abilities. They were called witches and they were burnt at the stake. And the Puritans were amongst the worst for demonizing that group of people. And of course, America was founded by the Puritans. So that demonization of the psychic got taken to America as its core principle of the Puritans, that they were anti anything to do with the psychic. So I suspect that you've got quite an unusual culture in the States because of that particular founding coming at the end of the 400 years of, of the Inquisition and the burning of the witches and the Jews and the gypsies and so on by the Inquisition, the Roman Catholic Church. Whereas if you go to a culture like you get in Africa, um, particularly sub-Saharan Africa, um, culture like you get in India and, and the Tibetans and so on, where the psychic is part and parcel of everyday life for everyone, almost, it's only those who've taken on the Western intellectual philosophy who are now denying the psychic. It's not there in the villages and amongst the common people. So uh, I suspect, uh, once again, that the American scenario is is strongest in America. It is affecting the rest of the world. I, I really saw that in India, that Indian intellectuals are espousing the American denial of, of the psychic. But that's very much within the intellectual realm and people who are trying to be as Western intellectual as they can be. That's a very interesting analysis, Serena. Uh, another sort of take on, on, on all of this, there, there's this idea of the cosmic game. Uh, Stanislav Grof, a, a well-known psychiatrist, written a book by that title. And, and the idea, I think, is that all of the human drama that we experience is, is sort of a game from a cosmic perspective, as if, you know, we exist inside of a, a simulated reality, a computer game, and we're here to uh, do our dharma, as in the Bhagavad Gita, where Arjuna is asked to, you know, fight a battle because don't worry about killing your own relatives. Only God can create a life or take a life away. So you have to play the game to the best of your ability. On the, on the one hand, it seems like it's a, a very intellectual attitude without compassion for the suffering that might be caused by, you know, playing the game just to win. 
the the notion of compassion it seems to me implies that you're going to feel the suffering feel the pain of other people and if you don't if you block that suffering off you're actually blocking your own psychic capacities well any blocking will block everything won't it that's the problem with putting up blocks um if if you want to see this universe as a cosmic game, that is one way of seeing it. I mean, they talk about the whole universe being the dream of Shiva, um, and and you know that that this samsara that we live in, this outer reality, is but a a, a cobweb um, that we get enmeshed in, and that we can become aware of ourselves as part of the whole universe. And then, of course, that means that the whole universe is part of each one of us. And the infinite views of the different people, the infinite ways, is part of the infinity of the whole universe. And this is a very interesting perspective because it means if you conceive of yourself as part of the whole, but you have the whole within you, then every thought, word, action that you do, that you put out there, will thereby affect you. So if you put out kindness and compassion and generosity and love and all those other aspects of being, then they will fill you. Whereas if you are competing to do better than others, if you are competing to be the top dog, or if you are being cruel, if you are torturing others, then you become a tortured being within yourself. So we have all of our different viewpoints and we choose the viewpoint that suits each one of us best. And that is a really interesting dynamic of the human being, that we have this infinity of ways of being and infinity of viewpoints because we are part of the infinite universe. And I find it very interesting that the West has great trouble with the concept of infinity. It came over to us from the East um, really within quite recent times by comparison with the East. And it's like some people still see life as a linear thing, that you are born, you live your life, you die. It's a line. It has a beginning, it has an end. Whereas in the East, we understand eternity and that every moment is a beginning and an end. There is no beginning and end. It always is. And if you want to call it a game, you can call it a game, but this is what the universe is. That was very eloquently put, Serena. It was beautiful. And I'm under the impression that you've just expressed the philosophy that really underlies your passion for uh, a carbon-free environment in Glastonbury. <laughs> oh, I mean, my passion for, for zero carbon is to save the planet from the worst possible destruction that it is careering towards 
right at this moment as we speak. Pacific Islands are going under the waves and the people are having to be relocated to New Zealand. I just um, heard an interview from somebody who lives on the Maldives and, you know, they are very close to being under the waves themselves. We have got the greatest mass extinction in terms of the speed of extinction that this planet has ever known. This is happening right at this moment as we speak. It's not, it's not an intellectual thing. It's a gut thing. It's a way of living your life to do one's best to mitigate the disaster that is upon us at the moment. 75% of insects have disappeared in the last 25 years. And insects are essential for all of life, for the pollination of our fruit trees and our beans and our peas. And we, us humans, are careering towards complete disaster. And, and the sooner we, we do something about it, the better. That's why I have the passion to aim for zero carbon by 2025. Now, I imagine that on the other side of the argument, especially since, as you point out, the opposition has been vociferous as well, they might say something like, well, if we address these climate problems, the economy is going to slow down and that will result in the starvation of millions of people. And if we don't address it, humans are likely to be close to being wiped out. So we're between a rock and a hard place, and we put ourselves there. I first became aware of this with a book called Limits to Growth by the Club of Rome in 1972, and they talked about this exponential that is happening at the moment. And that was when Friends of the Earth were formed, when Greenpeace was formed, and when those of us who became aware of it started to change our lifestyles. And in that book, it said that if we hadn't done anything about it by the 90s, it was going to get too late. And in the 90s was when they reported that what is called the pump that pumps the Gulf Stream because it's the warm waters hit the Arctic and go to the bottom and go back down south again. They said that that was slowing down, and I knew that we had already gone past the point. That was in the 90s. That's 30 years ago I knew that we'd, we'd already gone past the tipping point. So we're not talking something that is recent. We're talking something that people have been aware of for 50 years now. Since it seems as if we have passed the tipping point, uh, I recall, uh, I'm going to use some harsh language in a moment, but I was on an airplane once listening to an audio book about the environment. It was a British author, as I recall, and he went over all of the political arguments, and at the very last sentence of the book, he said, we're fucked. Yeah, we are. So... You know, by slowing down the economy, people are going to hurt. Yes, unfortunately. By doing nothing, people are going to potentially be destroyed along with a, a large portion of the ecosystems of the planet. Yes, unfortunately. We have only ourselves to blame. But given 
that it's already too late. I can well imagine some people are, are saying, if you know, no matter what we do, the outcome will be bad. I might as well uh, try and enrich myself in the short term. Then they are short-term people and they aren't thinking about their grandchildren. I'm thinking about my grandchildren. I'm trying to do the best for this little, little part of the planet that I live on to make us resilient so that my grandchildren will have some sort of a life. What is the best scenario that you can envision for your grandchildren? That we manage to keep global temperatures at the 1.5 level above um, where they have been. Because if we go above that, then it, if it, at the moment, it's projected to go beyond two because of we've done so little as a, as a, humanity on this planet and that is going to be real disaster but if we can i mean the 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 head of the united nations gave a big talk that i heard on the world service yesterday where he was saying this is the most vital thing that we really got to get all of the governments and all of the nations on board right now there's got to be a huge shift in order to try to keep the warming below two degrees, because even two degrees means that all the cities that are ports like New York, like Bombay, like London, around the world, all of our major cities are ports, they will all be underwater. So, in, in other words, you're hopeful that we could uh, at least avoid the very worst disasters. That's the aim to try to mitigate it as far as possible. What we're doing in Glastonbury is we are working on getting as sustainable a food supply that is local, not food flown in from all over the world, a local food supply, as sustainable as we possibly can. We are working on creating our own renewable energy that will power the town so that we have all of our energy supplied and we are working on changing the economy so that it's a local economy with with everything going round and round within Glastonbury so that whatever disasters strike, as far as possible, we have got enough for people to survive here. That's what we're working on. If every town across this planet worked on that, then we might mitigate the disaster to some degree. I have heard the motto, I think, uh, from the World Future Society many years ago, think globally, act locally. That's the one. Well, Serena Roney Dougal, this has been very inspiring to me. I'm so glad to be able to witness your passion and to be able to share it with our viewers. I think people from all political stripes can respect the strength of your commitment, the intensity of your vision, and the openness of, of your heart and of your mind. Thank you so much for being with me today, Serena. You're very welcome, Jeff. It's um, quite a challenge to step out of my comfort zone. I really appreciate it. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. 
Thank you.